This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Earlier this week, I called up Jessica Beyer, who teaches high school in Baltimore County in Maryland. What, uh, what are your kids studying right now? I teach English. So in our 11th grade, they're learning American literature, and currently our, our unit is about American activism. Because of the pandemic, Jessica teaches online. The kids are on Google Meet, and they file their work into an online learning management system. Right before the break, we were talking about the Declaration of Independence. We're going to read a, a speech from Barack Obama tomorrow. And then my 12th graders were on a unit about um, the evolution of gender roles. Jessica says this year has been a lot for her students. They come from mostly low-income communities. Many have lost people to COVID. It's felt like one hurdle after another. It's been a struggle to get a lot of kids to even engage with online learning. Some kids just don't want to do it. Some just didn't have the technology because the county wasn't able to get access to all the laptops that they needed. And even up to a couple of weeks ago, we're still distributing laptops to kids who didn't have them. Last Wednesday, it got even harder. Jessica was about to assign her seniors the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, to read over Thanksgiving break. And then I got a text from our department chair saying, we're closed today. Um, don't access the email. <laughs> Delete everything from your phone, essentially. Basically shut everything down. Jessica's school and the entire Baltimore County system that serves 115,000 students had been the victim of a ransomware attack. That's when hackers break into a digital system, encrypt files, and demand payment to unlock them. In Baltimore County, that meant the learning system, Schoology, was down. So was the school's main digital hub. No one could access any student work, assignments, or grades. And kids, teachers, and parents couldn't exchange messages. Someone, and it's still unclear who, wanted money to unlock any of it. The whole thing made Jessica really mad. You're attacking kids, right? And we don't know what they took in terms of student data. You know, these these kids, these are kids who work really hard to to get where they are. And, you know, and that's something that we, we focus on, like, especially this year, right, with online learning. We know it's not going to be a normal school year, no matter what we do. And the attack made everything feel even more tenuous. Now that we got through a full quarter, felt like we were, you know, starting to, to really get rolling. So it really threw a wrench into things, like, just as we were <laughs> feeling like we were really taken off. School was closed for three days. 
Jessica was able to meet with her kids again this week, but only about half of them were back online. She worries that the attack was just one more setback for her students in an already difficult year. Right now, Baltimore County schools are still working on restoring all their systems. But this is not an isolated incident. Several school districts around the country have been hit with ransomware attacks this year, the year learning really went online. Hospitals and businesses have also been hit. Basically, anywhere people are relying on networked computers is vulnerable. Today on the show, the rise in ransomware, the question of whether to pay up, and how the pandemic made things worse. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. To try to put the attack on Jessica's school in context, we reached out to Dave Aberti. He covers cybersecurity for The Wall Street Journal, and he's been writing about this uptick in ransomware attacks. Across the digital world, there's been an explosion of ransomware this year. It's an increasingly common way for attackers to target businesses, healthcare organizations, nonprofits, or as the case may be, schools. And the reason why is just because it's an effective business tactic. If you encrypt an organization's data, that's basically what they need to function, particularly in a digital environment. So as you've had a business or a school that has moved more and more to remote learning, that sort of expands the opportunities to take advantage. Are there demonstrably more attacks on schools this year? Are we just aware of them? Well, the first thing that's always important to point out here is that it's hard, if not impossible, to count the dogs that don't bark. There have been probably about 350 or more cyber incidents reported across the United States this year. In schools? In schools. And of those, probably a few dozen have been ransomware incidents. But that said... Those are only incidents that have been publicly reported. So in many cases, schools, you know, they don't want to take the PR hit. This is an embarrassing situation. They don't want people to know that they paid off a criminal group to get their systems up and running. They might just keep that on the DL and not notify anyone. Even though schools aren't the richest targets around, one of the reasons that hackers focus on them is that, unlike big businesses, they often aren't equipped to defend themselves. 
we have seen attackers really zero in on some of these districts that may or may not have built out IT departments. In many cases, in addition to them being sort of underfunded over the course of years, their IT departments, they also have these really, really insane strains just put on them through the coronavirus, remote learning, getting kids up and running with their Chromebooks or what have you. So there's really a lot of moving parts here. And I think criminals are, are smart enough to take advantage of them. So, yeah, is there just sort of like a handful of people who are in charge in your typical school district of distributing the Chromebooks and also guarding against malware? I mean, I would say in the vast majority of school districts, they don't have dedicated cybersecurity professionals. And even in most districts, aside from the larger ones, you don't have that much of a built out IT staff. Um, I talked to the chief information security officer of Seattle Public School District. It's a very large school district in the grand scheme of things. They only have 18 IT people for that entire district. Mm -hmm. Of that team, only two of them are dedicated on cybersecurity. So when you're in a position where you are suddenly thrust into a remote learning environment and you need to get tens of thousands of devices online, with Seattle, I think it was 53,000 devices for students alone. I mean, you really spread thin across a, a very big network of devices and potential threats. The threat of ransomware attacks has extended to fertility clinics and even a company providing software for one of the COVID vaccine trials. And the human consequences can be harrowing. There was an incident in Germany where a hospital was targeted with ransomware. And as a result of that, a woman who was actually in an ambulance on her way to the hospital had to be diverted into a, another facility about 30 minutes mm. farther away. And this woman ended up dying. She didn't get care uh, as fast as she needed to get. Um, so German prosecutors basically tried to connect those dots. They were asking the question, you know, can we show in a legal way causation between these attackers? Can we show causation that they actually caused this woman's death? And at the end of the day, they couldn't. It was more of a correlation, not causation situation. And I think that was the closest that we've come collectively to getting to a point where we were saying, oh, there's actually a cyber attack that has taken someone's life. So let's walk through how this happens. Let's say you are a school administrator or a hospital IT person. What do you notice first? Well, typically, you know, if, if you really, if something's wrong with your laptop and you really need to get to work, you'll call the IT guy. You'll, you'll it's always an IT guy. Uh, <laughs> and you'll say, hey, what's up with my laptop? I can't like log into my email. Um, then typically they'll run through some scans and, you know, see that something's wrong with the system. They'll eventually get some sort of communication from one of these ransomware groups saying, hey, we're here, we've gotten into your system, we've locked up your data, and we want X number of Bitcoin in response. So that's really when it, it sort of gets to this point where a school or a business has to decide, okay, are we going to alert law enforcement? Are we going to call an outside forensics firm to try to understand what happened? Have we backed up all of our data within our systems and how quickly will we be able to get that back? Um, do we want to pay this ransom payment? Like, is the trade-off good enough for us to do that? So there's a lot of moving parts that a lot of um, businesses or schools or hospitals have to evaluate as all of this happens. The Baltimore schools, where Jessica Bayer works, they shut everything down. They sort of put everything on pause for a couple of days. Is that standard? Yeah, I think that's typically standard. I talked with a school district in Southern California. Uh, administrator notices email was down 
the IT guy said it's ransomware for sure. So they physically went to every device in their school district. So we're talking about a school district of 6,000 kids, went to every room, went to all of their offices, disabled and unplugged every device in that entire school district. Um, wow. And that's, that's one way, you know, sort of a crude way of, of just trying to limit the spread of, of these things. And then, you know, obviously on the back end, when you solve all these problems, you need to go through to each and every one of those devices, scan them, make sure they're clean and get them back online and whatnot. How often do victims turn to outside help, whether that's law enforcement or whether that is a digital forensics company to help them? I would say it's extremely common. There is an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity firms that specialize in this sort of work. So you have a forensics firm that might come in to try to understand, hey, this is exactly how they got in to your computer system. This is exactly the type of software that they're using. This is exactly the type of data that they took from your system. Then in addition to that, you have other groups that are adept at negotiating um, they actually talk to these groups. They have, you know, long-term relationships in some cases with many of these groups. And they say, we can talk them down from, you know, 10 Bitcoin to 5 Bitcoin, whatever, whatever the, the number is. So it, it is sort of an emerging field uh, just within cybersecurity as this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. How much money are we generally talking about? Because my husband actually just had a ransomware attack on his nonprofit theater company. And the attackers were asking for $1,500 in Bitcoin. And eventually they said, you know what, we're not going to pay them. We have the backed up data. But they did have this moment of thinking, in the scheme of our business, it's not that much money. Like, are we talking about people who are shooting for big amounts? Or, you know, are they targeting... 25 different places for relatively gettable sums. Across the cybersecurity community, it's broadly understood that uh, ransom demands are basically going up. The trend line is pointing upward, but it can vary between, you know, in the thousands of dollars, like as, as the case was with, with your husband. But if you're getting to a larger corporation, you have some people who um, specialize in this area saying that ransom demands could be $10 million, $20 million dollars. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, attackers are smart enough to know they're not going to go with to a ten, you know, with a ten million dollar demand to a school district that certainly can't pay that, and that would make it an easy decision for them. They're they're trying to find like the right price point as well, where they can have some sort of a success rate. Do school districts, do hospitals, do these places tend to pay? It really varies. It depends on what type of data has been encrypted. It depends whether those school districts have backed up their data beforehand, which would make sort of rebooting the system much easier. Um, but what is almost always true is that school districts are very cagey about saying whether they paid. No one mm. wants to say that they paid off a hacker, that they gave you know someone from a country on the side of the other side of the world a million bucks to get their systems online. Um, it's a very difficult. PR situation for any organization or school to tiptoe around. Because it says, what, your system is vulnerable and that you're willing to pay or that you just were bad at cybersecurity? I mean, all of the above. And I think one of the sort of broader questions that the entire cyber community is really wrestling with is, should you pay, broadly speaking? Are we sort of incentivizing hackers to keep taking advantage of schools or keep taking advantage of businesses if they keep on paying? 
and I understand that argument completely. It's a it's a very you know straightforward point of view. On the other hand, if your business is offline for two weeks or a month, or if your school is taken offline, paying up might be the better option to you. Uh, if it right. means basically losing all of your customers or you know having kids go out of school for a month or so. Dave says it's a bit of a vicious cycle. Vulnerable systems, plus a willingness to pay, tends to lead to more attacks. But the victims are only half of the equation. The other half, the perpetrators behind that screen demanding Bitcoin, are part of a criminal industry that is surprisingly organized. One of the interesting things that cybersecurity researchers really say is that these groups oftentimes act almost as corporate entities. They're very professional. They have partnerships between groups. At times, they sort of subcontract to specialists within the hacking profession. If they have hmm. you know, someone who's particularly adept at you know, getting into a system, they'll go to that person to try to launch their attack. Uh, so you really do have this sort of R&D element almost uh, within the hacking community uh, when, it, when it comes to them trying to hone their craft and zero in on exactly the right targets. When people are negotiating or even having a conversation with the, you know, attackers, are they to be trusted? Like, you know, are are you going to trust these folks if they say like, okay, pay us our 1500 bucks in Bitcoin and actually you're going to get your data back? Or is that a terrible idea? You would think that criminals are not to be trusted and obviously they're, they're not. Um, but at the end of the day, these groups are also playing a long game when it comes to their business. And they have, as I said, a rapport with some of these negotiators that work with businesses and schools. And if they don't pay, if they don't decrypt your data after you pay them money, those negotiators will know for their subsequent clients and they will know to not advise clients in the future to pay. So you have huh. this weird dynamic that develops where these criminal groups are actually like worried about their sort of like brand in some respect. <laughs> That's completely fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a totally wild thing. And um, one lawyer who works on a lot of these investigations like re recently told me, we don't want to get to the level where we're comparing it to customer service, but they're like definitely getting to a point where once you pay up in some cases, they're trying to be helpful so that in the future, they're known as sort of an honest broker. While attacks may be more frequent, ransomware isn't new. Like with so many other things, COVID just accelerated an existing trend. So we have just seen a growth in the amount of ransomware with some of these criminal groups that have been long established in countries around the world just gravitating toward it as an effective tool that they're using. So when you talk to cybersecurity researchers who follow this stuff closely, attribution is very difficult, but they tend to say that the countries in which these types of groups operate are, might, might be the ones that you tend to think of, North Korea, Iran, China, countries in the, East, the Soviet bloc or Central Asia, countries that may tend to look away when cyber criminal groups within their own borders launch an attack on a U.S. business. And, and do foreign governments step in or are they unhelpful? I think it's safe to say that they, uh, the reason why a lot of this activity oftentimes stems from those countries is because the governments take a more lax approach to some of this hacking, particularly if it's sort of geared at the United States. The U.S. government uh, recently has tried to warn businesses against paying ransomware demands. They basically have 
looked at those states in particular, places like North Korea and Iran, and they've issued warnings to companies saying, hey, if you're targeted by ransomware, think twice about paying anyone who's affiliated with someone who's sanctioned from those countries. You could violate sanctioned rules by actually paying up this ransomware. I was really struck by that. Yeah, the Treasury Department was basically sort of saying, gee, even if you're a victim, you might be maybe committing a crime here if you pay up. But what was their reasoning there? I mean, I think it goes to that discussion that I was mentioning earlier about how we're creating a market for ransomware, essentially. And I think it's it makes sense that the U.S. government's official policy is we shouldn't pay people on our sanction lists and create this market. You know, that said, if a company that employs 10,000 or 20,000 Americans has to choose between paying one of these things or laying people off, uh, I mean, that's a much different conversation. And I'd be curious to see whether people in law enforcement, federal regulators, et cetera, might take sort of a you know, case-by-case approach to actually enforcing that sort of thing. I'm trying to figure out where all of this goes as we maybe move to a post-pandemic world. Um, obviously, people are going to still do lots of stuff online. And that's not something that's going away. But I wonder if you think we are going to keep seeing this increase in ransomware attacks or if this is maybe a a bit of a bubble wrought by the pandemic. I think it's probably safe to assume that it will continue increasing. You will still have these criminal groups that make tens of millions of dollars per year doing this stuff who will continue to innovate, continue to look for new ways to go after businesses, continue to do that research and development that we mentioned earlier. Uh, So I think it's safe to say that none of that's going to stop. Dave Uberti, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Dave Uberti is a cybersecurity reporter at The Wall Street Journal. And Jessica Beyer is a teacher in Baltimore County Public Schools. That's our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. Our executive producer is Alicia Montgomery. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Mary Harris will be back in your ears on Monday. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.